0: Welcome to Unlimited Hangout. I'm your host, Whitney Webb. In the time since the Ukraine-Russia conflict erupted in late February, much has changed, particularly in the financial realm, with major moves having been made in the international financial system to ostensibly punish Russia for the country's military operation in Ukraine. Yet despite its officially stated purpose, the ruble, Uh, Russia's currency regained its value about a month after these measures were imposed, and many of the sanctions' negative effects seem to have had a greater impact on the West than their ostensible target. This reality has left some scratching their heads in confusion, while others suspect incompetence or an ulterior motive is to blame. After all, it makes little practical sense to, quote-unquote, punish your enemy via measures that have a worse economic impact on your people than theirs, Aside from sanctions, other actions taken by Western governments are having other historical ramifications, including the potential end of the dollar's dominance as the world reserve currency, as well as the collapse of the petrodollar system. As the dollar's dominance comes into question now more than ever, so too has the U.S.'s hegemony that it has enjoyed in the post-World War II period, opening the door to the so-called multipolar world order. Yet with so much in flux, other finance-focused policies continue to march ahead in both blocks of this war. This includes central bank digital currencies, or CBDCs, which in some cases at least have seemed to advance as the Ukraine-Russia conflict opens up a new chapter in global crisis and instability. Despite there being two sides in this conflict, it seems that the adoption of CBDCs and the control system behind that system are continuing to advance in both Ukraine and Russia, as well as among their respective allies. Today, I'm lucky enough to be joined by John Titus to discuss the major and historic financial shifts of recent weeks, as well as the state of the global central bank digital currency agenda. John is the founder of the Best Evidence YouTube channel, also found on Odyssey in BitChute, which examines the major financial and legal forces shaping today's dystopia, uh, specifically in the United States. And he is also a frequent contributor to Catherine Austin Fitz's Solari report. If you are a regular listener to this podcast, you may remember John from episode 25, where we discuss central bank digital currencies in detail. For those not familiar with the CBDCs and their implications, I highly recommend revisiting that episode before enjoying this one. With that being said, welcome back to Unlimited Hangout, John. How have you been since we last spoke?
1: I've been really good, with it. It's good to be back.
0: Hey, well, that's that's super that you've been doing, uh, doing good in these increasingly crazy times. Uh, it, it's... Uh, Definitely a lot to uh, take in these days when you work in, you know, sort of absorbing uh, all the news that's being thrown at us constantly. And a lot of stuff has been happening since we last talked, uh, as I noted in my introduction. So, you know, um, there is a lot that we can cover. Uh, Is there anywhere in particular you'd like to start when it comes to the changes that have been foisted upon the world since late February?
1: Yeah, let me let me start with one that uh, that nobody's talking about. Uh, oh, good. Even better. It, it, it's <laughs> it's it's a significant one. It, and I don't know that nobody's talking about it. I don't, you know, I don't I try not to look at other people's content just because I want to have I don't want influences on my head other than my own. So I I'm pretty sure that nobody's talking about this. <clears throat> but on on March 2nd of this year, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, got up in front of the House Financial Services Committee. And he was asked a question about an hour into that hearing. And the question was, hey, you know, we notice China and Russia are transacting exclusively on their own native currencies. And Pakistan is thinking about, you know, entering into the fray. Um, and Basically, they're getting out of there. Everybody's getting out of the dollar. What effect might this have on the U.S. economy? And Powell's answer was, um, he immediately almost went to, Well, you know, we have the world reserve currency now, uh, but, you know, that could change. And there's been two world reserve currencies before. And then he says, you know, the things that really keep us the world reserve currency are one, we have, you know, historically have had low inflation. And two, we've had the rule of law. (laughs) So I I started laughing. It's like, well, we don't have low inflation's out the window.
0: Yeah. (laughs) That leaves
1: the rule of law. And that's out the window, too. I've documented that extensively on my YouTube channel for a long time and been and Odyssey. You know, I, I've been I've been on law for a long time that that's gone on a, for, to a certainty. We haven't had the rule of law since late 2012. But those are out the window. But I thought it was interesting that Powell immediately, despite the fact that the question was limited to what's the effect on the U.S. economy, he goes to world reserve currency right away. Um, that's a, that's a major tell. And his answer, I I made a video about this called your federal reserve cancer prescription is ready for pickup. And I've sort of walked through his testimony, but his testimony is clearly to me as someone who watches witnesses memorized, it's very scripted. Um, and I thought that was just a very interesting thing that he talks about that because it comes on the heels of, He's his, his talking about the world reserve currency like that, like it may be in jeopardy. It comes on the heels of official acknowledgement, both by Powell and by Yellen and, and really by BlackRock, that the U.S. fiscal path is no longer sustainable. And that kind of talk you didn't hear for a very long time, at least not from people in official positions. You always had people saying, oh, the debt clock is going crazy. It's ticking away. The debt's too high, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. I've been hearing that since the 80s. Okay, But what I never heard until very recently was public officials um, of, of that stature, of that rank, of cabinet-level officials, say you had might have had sub-cabinet officials saying there might have been a problem, but never a cabinet-level official saying, yeah, the debt path is unsustainable. We're going to need some severe austerity. To bring this in line, and there's a Treasury report on that very fact. But that's a that's a big development because what it says is the days of the U.S. currency are numbered because the debt path it's out of control.
0: A lot has been going on with the the discussion of the dollar's dominance essentially going away in in terms of it being the world reserve currency. Um, but before we explore some of some of those developments, um, could you perhaps explain? Um, what the end of that dominance would mean uh, domestically for regular Americans?
1: Yeah, uh, that would mean that a lot of... Right now, I'll give you an example. The currency in circulation, that means cash. That's sitting in probably $2.3 trillion. Uh, most of that is 70% of that the estimates. Nobody really knows because it's paper. Can't be tracked as easily. But estimates are that 70% of that $2.3 trillion is overseas it's, it's not because a lot of, a lot of countries, people, you know, regular workers in, in countries that are smaller, their, their, their currency, their native currency isn't as reliable and it's, it's consistent or predictable as the dollar, you know, the dollar is like a enormous iceberg. It, it takes a long time to shift it. Whereas smaller currencies are way more volatile. So a lot of people convert their paychecks in foreign countries into us dollars. They just keep them in cash. And that's where a lot of the money is, not to mention illicit drug transactions going on, also funded probably in paper. If the U.S. loses, to the extent the U.S. loses world reserve currency status, those dollars are going to flow back uh, into the U.S. And remember, those dollars are part of the U.S. monetary base. U.S. monetary base consists of paper, which is currency in circulation, cash, plus reserves, which are digital. So you're looking at a big portion of the monetary base come sloshing back home, um, and that that's going to have on that's going to have a, a sharp tendency to increase inflation, uh, which is already going on right now. Yeah, um, so it's going to
0: make that even worse. Then it's going to
1: exacerbate that mm-hmm. big time. Uh, so it's 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 a potential problem. It's a real problem. Not to mention the fact that we have gotten away with for a long time. The U.S. is basically exporting its main exports are, you know, violence, you know, wars, illegal yeah. wars, and fraud, um, and the and it doesn't really produce that much. The U.S. So it looks like we're at a inflection point where that joyride is coming to an end.
0: Right. Well, the petrodollar system, which uh, through all of this is being called into question as well, is partly uh, supported by U.S. military supremacy um, and and action. Ah, uh, throughout the world, and uh, since um, some of the developments we've um, we've seen in this in this relatively brief period of time involve uh, the Saudis, with whom the petrodollar system was originally negotiated uh, right. in the '70s, with the next administration, uh, so, uh, es- essentially siding with uh, Russia, or exa- not a, I, I don't know if I want to say hundred percent siding with Russia, but they didn't, you know, toe the line they were asked right. to by Washington. And the same is true for the United Arab Emirates as well, um, who um, at least U.S. media is alleging is helping um, Russian nationals circumvent Western sanctions. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the petrodollar system and um, how all of this is is essentially in, in flux since, uh, you know, uh, Washington and, and their allies tried to bring out the uh, the big guns? Sure. economically speaking
1: uh basically you know since uh, august 15th, 1971 up until that point in the bretton woods system the us dollar is gold backed um meaning it it's, it was a, it was a narrow backing meaning that i think it was only sovereign nations um who had dollars could redeem those dollars at the at the federal reserve window for gold at the at the rate of $35 an ounce and what happened is i think it was de gaulle Said, "Oh yeah, thirty-five dollars an ounce. Well, I've got uh, I've got thirty-five million dollars out here on a boat. Uh, I'd like a million ounces of gold." And Richard Nixon's like, "Oh hell no!" And he shut the gold window. So at that point, um, the U.S. dollar was was untethered. What that really meant was that the, that that um, the Federal Reserve was free to create as many dollars as it wanted at a thin air without any any real liability, you know, when, when it was gold back, you know, you had to worry about guys like De Gaulle coming up saying, Hey, I want, I want my gold. But once, once that peg breaks, um, you know, there's everybody knows the Fed is kind of free to, to, you know, issue as much currency as it wants to, um, and that, that could create problems. And, and for sure, the gold price immediately began to float in the upward direction and so what the the solution sort of the partial solution to that was implemented and supposedly devised by henry kissinger in 1973 and that was the petrodollar to sort of to keep up to keep up the demand for the gold since you've just reduced you just eliminated a, a kind of a strong psychological component behind the dollar which is dollar strong it's backed by gold um, you just you just eliminated that you need something to counterbalance that and the measure to sort of counteract the breaking of the gold peg was the petrodollar, which basically said, if you're an oil producing nation, Saudi Arabia, uh, whoever, thou shalt conduct all oil transactions in dollars. So that Mm -hmm. because the whole world needs oil to operate. If you, if you, if you go to the oil producing nations and say, you know, you have to conduct your, your oil transactions in dollars, You've just set up, you've just put in a floor under the dollar that's very real. Um, you have to remember that the, the the powers that be are very good at putting in place, they don't have to control the whole world. They just need to control the critical junctions. I'll give you an example. Mm-hmm. Rockefeller realized, I don't need to control the whole, whole oil industry. I just need to control the drill bits. That's it. No drill bits, no oil. So we got patents on all the drill bits and that's how there's a big measure of control over the oil industry. The petrodollar is sort of the same notion. You don't need to control the whole wide world, just control the the purchase of oil. And then you got them. And that was really the origin of the petrodollar. So now, flash forward to today, if you have the, so those countries, Saudi Arabia and Emirates, they, they get on board and they agree with that. Okay. So they, they are at that time, back in 1973 and up, up until recently, they're really sort of um, easily controllable by the U S and now you're seeing you're getting a lot of lip from these guys. So now NATO goes to them and says, Hey, how about getting on board with the Russian sanctions? And they're like, no, no, we're not, we're, no, we're not doing that. So you're getting pushback from people who right. used to be unquestionable um, sort of levers of your own power. And now they're not levers.
0: Yeah, that's really, um, I think a a, a big development um, when when you consider the fact that well at least the theories anyway that one of the the motivations behind like the Iraq War for example was that Saddam Hussein had started selling oil in euros uh, and that one of the motivations behind uh, intervention in in Libya um, during the Obama administration was was efforts uh, by Gaddafi to sell oil um, in a gold backed dinar. Um, and in that sort of you know the protection of the petrodollar system has informed uh, major U.S. military action in the past, or at least coups, um, things of that nature. Yeah. Um, so, uh, what do you do? You, do you expect uh, some of that to appear? Some some have suggested that the uh, alleged uh, almost coup against Imran Khan in in Pakistan was motivated by this. I don't know if you have any thoughts.
1: Um. You know, I don't really know what's going on in Pakistan. I do know that that is a rather curious development. You have this popular figure getting ousted all of a sudden, you know, by what appears to be two long entrenched dynasties there. But back to what you were saying about the petrodollar, it's it's not just messing with the petrodollar that'll get you in trouble with the US. It's also messing with the debt-backed monetary system, the debt-based monetary system in which you have private banks really issuing your money. You start to mess with that and start issuing money directly, you know, non-interest-bearing notes from the government. Uh, that's another way to, to land you in, in in hot water. With but basically, mm. either way, mess with the dollar, and you're going to get in trouble. So I, I don't know. I don't know the ins and outs of what happened in Pakistan. It, it's been recent. I haven't had time to really look at it, but it is curious. And I have seen articles saying it was it was at the it was at the instigation of the U.S. No, no question about that. And remember, that question to Powell, you know, I talked about on March 2nd in the House Financial Services Committee, the question was, hey, you know, Pakistan's getting in on the act. So there was already official recognition in early March that Pakistan was, was, um, you know, I don't want to say in cahoots with, but there was already an indication as of early March that Pakistan was at a minimum monetarily friendly with Russia. And China, so I, I can't imagine those two things are unconnected.
0: Another recent development uh, is that Russia has uh, pegged the ruble to gold. Sort of, you know, the U.S. left the the gold standard uh, decades ago, and uh, there's been some excitement, a lot of excitement in some parts of the alternative media community over this development about, you know, a gold-backed ruble. What are your thoughts on on that development?
1: Uh, I think a lot of that was. You know the sanctions un- undeniably, I think, as you pointed out in your intro, had an impact on the ruble. You know, w- mm-hmm. the ruble was in a long term trend, but up until this, the, the kerfuffle in the Ukraine, uh, it was a long term trend about 75 rubles per dollar. And when the sanctions really hit and the war got going, it spiked up to I don't know 125, 135, and now it's back down to. It looks like the, it's trending out at about 85. So there's been an impact, and undoubtedly, you know, Russia has taken measures to protect the ruble from that that spike and bring it back to its to its long-term trend. And one of those measures was is, was gold backing, but it wasn't the only measure. You know, the other the other measure was, hey, you know, you're going to sanction us, fine. You're not getting free gas, so from now on, you're going to pay. You don't have to pay us the rubles. You just, you have to pay, you just have to, it's not, it's not what you, it's not the currency you need to pay us in. It's where you need to pay it. And you're going to pay it at a bank that's not under your sanctions. You're going to pay it at a bank that's in Russia, a Gazprom bank. We don't care what you pay it in. We'll, we'll, we'll sell the thing. We'll, if you want to pay us in euros, that's fine. We'll sell it on the market. Sell your euros for rubles and we'll do it that way. But Russia's taking taken any number of measures. I wouldn't read too much into the gold backing because remember the U the dollar was gold backed. Right? Mm -hmm. It was gold back from 44, whatever it was, 46, until 71. How'd that work out? That worked out with a gold window closing. So the gold backing is only as good (laughs) as, as how much gold you have. And nobody really knows how much that is with either the US or Russia. So it can always be broken. So the other thing about gold backing is there's really two forms to gold backing. Okay. Gold backing can mean really one of two things depending on who's really issuing your money if you in a debt based monetary system um gold is your reserve currency really means that when you have transactions between parties between different parties that are issuing liability money for example banks that they can settle up in gold it's just it's just how they settle their ious right so if you take on 100 dollars of your neighbor's ious and your neighbor takes on $200 of your IOUs, you owe your neighbor $100. And the way that would settle historically was with the gold. That's in a debt-based monetary system. In a, in a monetary system where the real sovereign, where the nation is issuing its own money, like the U.S. issues quarters and dimes, right? Um, there was a, there's been times in the U.S. where we issue our own money. The reason for a gold backing there is to prevent the government to prevent the government from issuing too much money, and I'll—I'll I'll confess, I don't really know who is—is is really in control of Russia. Okay, I, I, in the U.S., I can tell you, I know uh, because I've tracked it really well. Like I mentioned, the U.S. lost the rule of law some time ago, meaning that the real sovereign power in the U.S. is not. Um, the U S government. It's not the Congress. It's not the executive branch. It's not the judiciary. It's not any combination of those three. The real sovereign power of the U S is the financial powers that be. It's that it's private banks Mm -hmm. that are really in control of the U S. And the way you know, that is that in the wake of the financial crisis, those banks were not investigated. It's not that they weren't prosecuted. They weren't investigated. And when you look at that, it's like they weren't investigated, like they didn't, they, they didn't have to answer, they didn't, weren't even subpoenaed. I mean, my God, you, 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 the president of the United States could be subpoenaed. We know that from U.S. versus Nixon in nineteen seventy-three or nineteen seventy-four. I think it was seventy-three. Yeah, you, know, you know, the president of the United States can be subpoenaed in a criminal trial. He may not have to stand trial, but he can damn sure be subpoenaed. And the banks in the wake of the financial crisis—they weren't subpoenaed in large measure because. The head of the DOJ at that time was a law firm called Covington and Burling that represented all those banks, represented all those Wall Street banks, and their top two guys, Eric Holder and Lanny Brewer, are running the DOJ. They're not subpoenaed. So where, pray tell, do the banks inherit or derive the sovereign power of not being subpoenaed? That 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 tells you right there. If you if you're free to commit crimes and you're free from investigation, you you're the sovereign power. Period.
0: Well, not only that, you also have uh, the secretary of the the Treasury at the time, uh, Henry Paulson, demanding that you know Congress bail out the the banks um, that weren't subpoenaed uh, that you that you just referred to, um, or there would be martial law declared. Yeah, is what congressmen mm-hmm. were told. So, give us uh, free money, or we'll declare martial law on you and take away your rights. Yeah, that was that basically was... the the message <clears throat>
1: there. You know, my, my read on that bailout. Uh, has has changed over time, and I'm actually working on a documentary now, a multi-part documentary. It's uh, going to be called "Murder of a Rebel Nation," and that's that's a very critical episode. But if you but if you think for a second, in the wake of the financial crisis, the real bailout wasn't TARP; it wasn't 700 billion dollars from the Treasury. The real bailout came from the Fed. So it's like, well, mm-hmm. if you could if you could bail out if the Fed could, could have all all along bailed out the banks with trillions of dollars. Why didn't it do so? You know? And so you said, well, what was the real point of the treasury bailout? And my read on it is really that they needed um, the powers that be needed, the political cover. They they needed to get politicians on the hook and behind the bailout because when, when it was first proposed, people were so opposed to the bailout, like at a hundred to one, that if the Fed had just swooped in and bailed the banks out and bypassed Congress and bypassed the Treasury, there would have been an audit, as it was. There was an audit anyway. People were so pissed that in 2010, there was an audit as, as a result of the efforts by Ron Paul on the right and Bernie Sanders on the left and a journalist from Bloomberg named Mark Pittman, <clears throat> who foied you know, the Fed. There, there was an audit of the Fed. It was limited but there was an audit. Had the Fed, though, in 2008, just bypassed all that and bailed out the banks, there for sure would have been an audit. It probably would have been full. So I I think we're, you know, even though it's 14 years down the road since the bailout, we're still learning stuff about the bailout through four years or whatever else.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, I've actually come across stuff I didn't uh, realize or or really connect the dots before in writing my uh, book on the Jeffrey Epstein scandal as it relates to. Uh, Epstein's role in the collapse of uh, Bear Stearns and also, um, as uh, was reported on Wall Street on Parade, which is a, a pretty excellent yeah. uh, financial-focused blog, um, I think around the time of Epstein's arrest in 2019, they talked about how um, some of uh, Epstein's uh, you know entities that he controlled, uh, like Liquid Funding, appeared to have received uh, some of this Fed bailout money yeah. secret fed bailout money and all of this stuff so uh there definitely is a lot to still on earth about this uh about that particular event in uh, american financial history for sure yeah
1: bear stearns that that was not a failure that bear stearns was executed they, they were assassinated they were pushed under a bus yeah
0: well them. you know it appears to have been based on court documents uh, so i guess this is a little bit of a spoiler for my book but he appears to have uh, been the pin that popped the Uh, that bubble at bear stearns essentially wow no (laughs) yeah yeah the details on that uh forthcoming but um (laughs) that's that's a headline right
1: there way to go
0: well uh there was actually another person who um i'm blanking on their name right now uh but i we can probably throw their article in the in the show notes that uh sort of led me to that so i can't take full credit but it definitely is a um, very interesting uh, considering uh, what we know now about um, his intelligence ties and things like that, you know, yeah, because uh, it was initially framed as, oh, he did it because he was worried about his money, but he got all that money back from the Fed yeah, the <laughs> after the Fed, right?
1: The Bear Stearns bailout was March of 2008. And if you look at that window, say from March 2008 through well, just arbitrarily end of 2009, the, the amount of skullduggery, at that time is not to be believed and it's still coming out.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Bear Stearns was a really dirty bank. Uh, I mean, you can take the... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the Epstein Association there. And there's a lot of really other crazy stuff uh, that I've come across in that context, too, like um, the role of one of Leslie Wexner's top cronies and selecting Jamie Dimon as head of J.P. Morgan. Yeah. J.P. Morgan becomes Epstein's bank after Bear Stearns collapse.
1: Which was the biggest beneficiary of that bailout. Bear, J.P. Yeah. Morgan mopped up to the tune of about $55 billion from the, from the failure of Bear Stearns.
0: Yeah. So it definitely seems to have been, uh, one of several financial coup d'etats of the past several decades, benefiting essentially the same network of people. You got uh, it. It's a really crazy story. Um, and, uh, I don't know now it seems like we're in their, their end game, <laughs> yes. uh, financially. So, you know, there's a lot of history, uh, to that, that I guess we could, you know, discuss it at length, but, um, uh, returning to the, the topics at hand, um, unless there's anything else you want to say uh, on on those matters, um, just there on, is... Just, oh, on the sure. end,
1: just on the end game, because I think you're exactly right about the end game, but I'm going to explain what I... I agree we're in the end game, but I want to explain what I mean by the end game. I've got that, my like I say, my most recent video, your Federal sure. Reserve Cancer Prescription is ready for pickup, talks about this. The end game to me means the U.S. is now... Borrowed. <clears throat> the end game to me means... The U.S. is now borrowing to make its interest payment. Okay, and by interest, I don't mean just the interest on the debt, although it, that's included. The interest payment really is—it's what you owe as a result of a contract. It be it a contract on a bond or a social contract, like, like Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and whatnot. You can't really cut those payments because the deal when you go into the labor force is, hey, you know, when you are younger and healthier, you pay into the system. And when you're older and weaker and you're out of, and you're not making as much money, you get your money back out of the system.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: When you add up interest plus Medicare, plus Medicaid, plus social security, it is now in excess of tax receipts. And you are thus borrowing to make your interest payments, meaning you're, you're done. You now yeah. are looking at an exponential growth of debt way beyond your means and it's over. And that's where the U S is right now. And that is why Powell, and BlackRock and Yellen are all joining together saying, yeah, the fiscal path is unsustainable. They cite other reasons than what I just gave you, but that's the reason, rest assured.
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, (laughs) I think it's pretty safe to say that the vast majority of Americans would not take kindly to the social security system uh, having been known to be insolvent for some time and not being informed about it until it's just like not there anymore. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the the role of BlackRock and stuff, which we talked about um, the last time you were on, uh, you know, they also, if I'm not mistaken, control a lot of America's pension funds as well, which is. Uh, well, they have $10 um,
1: trillion in assets. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah
0: yeah recipe for total disaster um that's for sure so um anyway, uh going back to some of the stuff that's happened um on the on the global level, um we have this whole um other development that we haven't quite discussed yet. well, I think you alluded to it earlier um about um Russia uh, asking unfriendly nations to pay for uh, energy expenses, hydrocarbon purchases yeah. um in in the ruble. um what's your take on that? Yeah, do you so, think it'll it'll work?
1: <laughs> well, Russia's got the gas. So yes, it's going to work. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what's your what's your other option? If you don't want to pay for the gas, what are you going to beat it out of Russia? How's that working out for you in Ukraine? Not so well, is it? Because you
0: Right. Yeah. Well, the, one of the the things I've sort of considered here is that it, it might be a way for Europe to advance uh, the great reset agenda, the sort of, you know, the the WEF uh, the agenda, as described by, by the West, towards sort of green energy, quote unquote, which involves really s- uh, squeezing out, uh, even before all of this unfolded in Ukraine, sort of a you know squeezing uh, the standard of living of the people there as it relates to uh, energy availability. Um, I don't know if you have any opinions on that.
1: Well, back to back to the Gazprom bank. What, what Russia did was they said, hey, look, you know, it's not that you have to pay it in rubles. It's you have to pay it to a bank that's beyond your sanctions, which means a bank in Russia, which has mm. the Gazprom bank. So we don't care. You can pay it in dollars, you can pay your, your gas bill in Euros. Whatever you want to pay. You know, it's your choice. You can pay it in rubles, that's fine too, but you're gonna pay it at our bank. And we'll take care of the rest, but you're paying it at our bank. You're paying it at a non-sanctioned bank because the West can't sanction a bank that's out of its jurisdiction, right? It can only sanction banks that are in its circuit. So it's free to sanction banks in the U S and Europe or wherever you can't sanction a bank inside of Russia. And that's really the essence of that story. It's not that simple. It's not that complicated. I think people have overcomplicated that whole thing. I mean, they just, you know, Putin sidestepped these guys like they were you know, kindergartners and said, you know, pay, pay in our bank. And that's what's going on. And and like you're saying though, the, the victim of all this, the people who are absorbing the brunt of what's going on are really, it's really Europe. It's going to pay the price here, both in terms of higher energy prices or or no heat. Take your right. Well,
0: that's already you know abundantly clear, especially in uh, places like the UK, where energy costs have already. uh, The the media there's already admitting that standard of living has been uh, hit pretty hard there because of the extreme and rapid rise in energy costs but a lot of people i guess through you know i guess the the war propaganda have been have been sort of trained to oh it's uh we'll sacrifice anything as long as we're helping ukrainians but i mean it, it's hard to argue that the sanctions are actually like helping ukrainians especially with like russia being able to easily circumvent um all of this and you know there's other arguments they made about how it's not necessarily helping ukrainians uh, either but it's sort of manipulating sort of this this empathy for people abroad uh as their standard of living um is is demolished and it, i don't know i'm do you see this as incompetence on the part of uk leaders the fact that they're even calling for more sanctions in the west that have that didn't work and <laughs> probably won't uh work again you know or will be circumvented again uh, so um you know is it incompetence or is there uh you know an ulterior motive here
1: um I think it's it's part incompetence and it's part narcissistic personality disorder of some of the characters involved. Um, and certainly some of it is deliberate. But you mentioned WEF, World Economic Forum. <clears throat> and I'll just tell you right now, my, my read of that group might be a little bit different than a lot of um, other people. Sure, at, that's good. In, in the alternative media space. hmm um, cause I, I'm curious about them too. Like what, what is this group? Why are they getting so much attention? You know, what, what's up with them? And so I've kind of, I, I spent some time sort of thumbing through their website. And what, the first thing I noticed about the W E F you, you mentioned your book on, you worked on Epstein's book, right? You did a whole book mm-hmm. on, on Epstein. One of the things I noticed with Epstein when I, I like f- going through photographs because you know the camera doesn't lie. Right. Um, and I go through these photographs of these people involved with Epstein, and I'm like, these are all chumps. You, know, it's ne- you never see like a major real power player among with Epstein. It's always these chumps like Bill Gates and uh, Larry Summers is a good example. You never see a guy like Tim Geithner. But Geithner is a real power broker, okay? And I say that knowing that Geithner worked putatively, worked for Larry Summers when, when Summers was strategy secretary, but I'm here to tell you Geithner was Geithner never answered to Summers. It was always the other way around. geithner's is a real power player, and you never, so you never see like these major central bankers and major you know Geithner was president of the New York Fed. Okay, he's he's right. a real power broker. Geithner went to Warburg when he was done in the Obama administration. Yeah, <laughs> okay. read read mm-hmm. Matt Stoller's book review of Geithner's book. Even Stoller, who's a who's a lefty, you know, he, so he doesn't want to be accused of being a conspiracy theorist. He's just like going upstairs, like, oh, come on. You know, Geithner's story about you know, one night he's in business school and he's playing pinball and he gets a phone call from Henry Kissinger. It's like, what, what is this guy not? Doing? <laughs> oh, man. You know, these stories are just ludicrous because it's the stuff he's leaving out so much. And what he's leaving out, Geithner, is, is that he's not saying he's a super connected guy. He's a real power broker. And you never see these power brokers in Jeffrey Epstein's pictures. And you'll notice the same thing when you look at the World Economic Forum photographs. You never see the major power players. It's always it's very it's a very corporate uh, oriented outfit. And they do a lot of jawboning and a lot of talking, but it, it's most assuredly a very corporate outfit. The other thing I notice with World Economic Forum is if you look through um, the 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 they have partners. They have, you can go on their website. In the partner section, and it's alphabetized. You can click through. I went through the whole thing, looking for law firms because that's what I know. I'm a U.S. lawyer. I know law firms, so I'm like, I wonder what law firms have partnered up with with the WEF. And there's only two. I was stunned, and the two are, strangely enough, Covington and Burling, which I mentioned earlier. They represented all the Wall Street banks, and there's those. Yeah,
0: very DC connected firm. Very mm-hmm.
1: DC connected. And then the other one is Morgan Lewis and Bacchius, which is, you know, it's a big law firm, nothing special. It's a garden variety, big law firm out of Philadelphia, as I recall. But you don't see like any, you know, Sullivan and Cromwell, Davis, Polk. Yeah. Quinn, you don't see any, you know, Kirkland and Ellis. You don't see any real showstoppers in there. You know, it's Covington and it's Morgan Lewis. It's like, yeah, okay. So that's, that was like, that's curious to me. But the real thing that made me curious is like, you know, WEF is in Switzerland, right? Yeah. And if you're in Switzerland and you're an organization, there's going to be somewhere you have an, or you have an, uh, an agreement with Switzerland as to how you're going to conduct business with Switzerland. And the reason I know that is I did a lot of research into the bank for international settlements. And so there's a headquarters agreement in place. It's been in place for a long time since I think the 19 early thirties between the bank for international settlements and Switzerland that governs how, the bank, the BIS is going to be treated inside Switzerland. An agreement is dead serious. It's like, okay, uh, Switzerland, you you don't have access to our documents. You can't uh, bring us to to heel at a judicial proceeding unless it's like a traffic accident. You can't subpoena our records, you can't send the police in here, you know, our data is off, everything is off base. For all intents and purposes, the BIS is operating as a country inside of another country which is yeah. a very significant thing. What that means is that, you know, if you're going to sue the BIS from the outside, okay, you can only get to the BIS through Switzerland. And Switzerland can't give you any powers that Switzerland itself does not have. And Switzerland, w- waved bye-bye to those powers against the BIS a long time ago with that headquarters agreement. So if you're going to sue the BIS, you're not going to get shit from the BIS. You're not going to get... A shred of paper. You're not going to get a witness. You're not going to get anything. You're going to get buckets, and that's why they're there, and that's a huge thing because the BIS and the membership of some some groups within the BIS is composed of people who are, have real sovereign power from real countries. Treasury officials, Securities and Exchange Commission, Federal Reserve people in the U.S., and you know similarly placed people and countries from around the world go to the BIS and they conduct business. In complete secrecy, and it's all due to that headquarters agreement between the BIS and Switzerland. Now, by way of that background, let's look at the the World Economic Forum. It has an agreement in place too. I found it on the internet. It's short and it's in it's in German. It's in a foreign language, but I went online. I, I just was I, I didn't have the document translated, but I had a I I did an interlinear translation through um just online, dropping phrases and to get them translated and the and the, the thrust of the agreement is it's all kind of um you know nice sentiments it's like well we, you know we're going to work together in a spirit of cooperation you know we want the world to be a nice place and so it's we're going we're going to foster harmony it's like what yeah
0: the wef is really heavy on on that fluffy um like, is this is like language fl- fluffy the cat
1: there's no teeth in that <laughs> at all you know, there's just like a joke. It's like, well, you could sue the shit out of them and you're gonna get you're gonna get some traction for sure. So I I am not sold on the idea of the of the WEF being this all powerful organization.
0: Yeah, yep. I, I agree.
1: Answer this question. What's the real difference between the World Economic Forum on the one hand and a country club on the other hand? Yeah, it's a place where powerful people get together. No doubt about that. But what real muscle does it have? Does it have a military? Does it issue money? Does it have sovereign power? Can it avoid prosecution? Can it avoid a subpoena? The answer to all those questions is no.
0: Right. So I definitely agree with you that the WEF is not this all powerful entity that it's sort of become in some circles um, yeah. of, of alternative and independent media, Um I don't know if you're familiar with his work, but I've had a uh, Ian Davis on, on my podcast um, a couple times now. He also contributes to uh, my website yeah, and he, he refers to the powers that be sort of as a, the global public private partnership. He puts the bank of international settlements at the top of that hierarchy and a couple le- levels down. He puts the world economic forum alongside um, other organizations like the council on foreign relations, um, Chatham house, um, I'm blanking on some of the other, the Carnegie Endowment, some of these other groups that basically what they do is they uh, develop policies that then, you know, um, are sort of given to governments by, by you know, people in the middle, like Bill Gates, for example. Um, and then the governments essentially enforce policy they didn't develop yeah. um, on, on the people. And so I sort of see the WEF in that framework. And they get a lot of attention, I think, because, you know, if you look at the Council on Foreign Relations, they're more focused on setting policy as it relates to foreign policy. Uh, the WEF ha- develops a lot of policy documents basically touching everything, right? And they, they've they done a lot on sort of this new, um, I guess, era, if you want to call it that, that we're sort of being pushed into this digital control grid, right? Um, as a lot of people uh, refer to it, you know, the fourth industrial revolution and all of that, They've uh, done a lot of focus on 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 those types of issues, whereas the Council on Foreign Relations, for example, has done less, but still has done stuff, um, you know, like um, the Carnegie Endowment, for example, has done a lot of stuff on sort of like CBDCs and how to get them sort of in through the back door if there's a financial cyber attack and making all these weird uh, agreements with central banks and stuff behind the scenes. That doesn't really get talked about right because all the attention is on um. The WEF constantly. So there is a lot of, um, right. you know, um, right. I think it's it's misdirection in a sense to focus exclusively on them. It doesn't help that Klaus Schwab is a silly uh, Bond villain guy. <laughs> I, yeah. I think he's criminally insane to be sure. And I do think there are some uh, really nefarious people involved with there that are powerful that do have a lot of influence in the WEF. I mean, you have... Um, uh, the head of, of BlackRock on the board of of trustees, for example, Larry Fink. He definitely right. uh, has a lot of uh, pull, <laughs> uh, not sure. just in the U.S. but but globally, right? So I I I would urge people to sort of see the WEF in the proper context, sort of as part of a network rather than the all powerful top of the hierarchy and and King Schwab issuing you know edicts from the top down. Uh, I really tend to agree more with how um, Ian has set up the the hierarchy because you know bis issues the money and like you said they're <laughs> accountable to no one they're basically like operating like the vatican almost but you know as a bank in switzerland well the vatican has a bank well, too, I guess, but more than you know, that. different. It's, mm-hmm. it's
1: and i've seen that chart you mentioned uh, the, di- the diagram by ian and I, I really like ian davis stuff but I, he he did a chart as i recall it's in black and white um mm-hmm. it popped into my head when you were talking i was like oh yeah i've seen that and it, it, i remember thinking to myself This chart's dead on that this diagram he's got is completely on the money from my, in my opinion, you have the BIS at the top. And the, but the, the difference between the the BIS on the one hand and the the Vatican on the other is the BIS, one of the entities operating within the BIS is called the financial stability board. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: And if you look at who's on the financial stability board, it's, it's not, they're not really names, they're titles, they're titles of people in sovereign governments it's changed over time, but when it started out, FSB started out in whatever whatever it was, 2009, 2010, around there, the titles of people who were automatically members of the FSB from the US were chairman of the Fed, secretary of the treasury, chairman of the SEC. And it was the same in England. It was head of the Bank of England. It was uh, head of the exchequer, So at one time, George Osborne. And it was head of um you know the financial stability authority or some such thing. It was the SEC in England. So those are those are so, it's sovereign people, you know, it representatives of sovereign governments in the FSB, inside of the BIS, protected by this headquarters agreement. And the Vatican doesn't, the Vatican, you know, nobody's given automatic membership into the Vatican. And with the But the, the BIS and what you notice with the FSB is that n- nobody ever declined. You know, they, you never saw anybody go, you know, the hell with you. You know, who are you to tell me that I'm a member of your club and I'm going to come to these meetings? No one ever did that. It was like, holy shit, this is a really serious organization. Mm-hmm. You know? they're, they're going there for real and conducting meetings. You know, the BIS, they meet eight times a year. And it's, it, it's major bankers who are going. You know, and major, major... Um, financial players, monetary players from sovereign governments who are going over there and meeting. So it's it's a no kidding around organization. I, I just don't see the equivalence of that with I, I think in a lot of ways the WEF distracts your attention away from the real power brokers and the real smoke filled rooms because you get a chew toy like like Klaus Schwab. You know, like you mentioned the joke.
0: <laughs> I, I like her. The idea of him being a chew toy. <laughs> Sorry, that, like That's it it's like these, yeah. these guys the
1: powers of me. They throw out these chew toys and you just rah 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 rah, you're chewing this thing rah rah like a dog, and at the end of the day, you gotta go take a nap because you just pissed away all your energy on it on a you know biting a piece of rubber that didn't amount to anything. You know what I mean? Uh, and i you know, I think that I, I can make a counter-argument too, which is that as corporations take over governments, the power is going to move from somewhere like the BIS and the sovereign governments to a corporate power structure. But if so, why are you leaving in place the, you know, why are you leaving yourself open to, to, to suits with the agreement that's in place between Switzerland and the WEF? That agreement's very weak. But, but then again, you know, that said, yeah, I haven't, I don't have a full translation of the agreement, but it's really short that agreement. You know, I, I had enough of a translator to get the flavor of it. And the flavor of it was Fluffy the Cat, for sure.
0: Well, that's like a lot of stuff the WEF puts out. This is how we're going to make a better world. We need more global governance because we can all live in harmony together and and a bunch of crap like that. I mean, that's pretty much uh, yeah, it's like <laughs> uh, most of their website. But they do have some policy documents that are very illuminating. And some, um, the WEF, you know, itself has is is full you know, of, of subcommittees and, and smaller alliances, organizations. And some of those are, are pretty significant. Like the cybersecurity center, I wrote about a lot. They have a, it's basically a partnership of Israeli UK and American law enforcement agencies and a lot of big private banks. Um, and it, basically what it is, is, um, the some of the agreements in there that i've written about before is in the event of a major cyber attack on the financial system uh they will uh they have basically a a policy mapped out that will lead to the end of both financial and online anonymity as a way to ostensibly combat ransomware so really it's narrative setting you know they're they're developing you know um uh, the narrative to take us from crisis to uh, a solution that benefits the elites in a sense uh, in, in doing things like that with the complicity of some of these uh, some organizations that do have a lot of pull, but I don't think the WEF by any means is the, the be all end all here. It's definitely, you know, sort of like a minute manad- I would sort of see it as a managerial type thing. And if you look at Klaus Schwab's history and we have articles plenty of article well plenty we have two very in-depth articles on on Klaus Schwab's uh, history. he he is a managerial type guy uh, going back to before he created the WeF and, and you know there there was a lot of managerial, uh, type language in the uh, initial founding of of the WEF as well, um, and and that's really who who and what he is. And uh, the most recent article on that uh, that that we have is about um, you know the role of people like the the, the Council on Foreign Relations and Henry Kissinger uh, helping a young Klaus Schwab because he was like in his early 30s, I think, when he set up the WEF, uh, You know, essentially helping him. Get uh, you know, Europe's elite on board with with using that as a particular meeting space for particular purposes, right? But I think there's a reason that they've uh, been elevated to be the bad guy, just sort of like Bill Gates as being, you know, uh, being the main focus for a lot of people as it relates to, um, you know, uh, different things going on uh, under the guise of COVID nineteen, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, it wasn't all Bill Gates, but Bill Gates does have a role. That's important to examine, but blowing it out of proportion doesn't really help the issue.
1: Yeah, because there's no way to hold Bill Gates accountable. He's a private party. So what are you going to do? But, but I want to go back to something you just said. I I was not aware until you just said it, that the WEF had partnerships with law enforcement agencies in different countries. That comes as news, mm-hmm. And that that is a sovereign but law enforcement is, you know, it's a very important sovereign power to have. Right to hear that there's law enforcement alliances between the wef and and law enforcement agencies in different countries it, that's a serious matter
0: yeah um but it's like i say it, you only that's not all it, the law enforcement agencies that at least the, that i've seen with the wef that those partnerships are you know in these alliances that are law enforcement agencies and banks and it's all related to cybersecurity but it's weird uh. that it's um well, and also private cybersecurity firms, a lot of which are intelligence linked, both uh mainly US and Israeli intelligence. Yeah, uh, linked. And the guy that directs the WEF's uh, cybersecurity whole policy is the guy that used to set cybersecurity policy for Netanyahu and Israel. Um so there, you know, there's a lot, I think, going on in, in that particular realm. Uh, but you know, there's um, you know, p pe- I think people need to uh, understand uh this particular organization and in a little more uh, context, but basically, you know, the WEF, how they frame themselves, right, is the, the premier organization that promotes public-private partnerships. So those types of alliances, like the one I just mentioned with cybersecurity, they're basically setting those up like all over the world. (laughs) Um, And that's really what they do. And those, but you know, it's not, the, the, the WEF is doing that for, uh, on behalf of certain parties. It's not necessarily a, a, an idea that was born in the WEF and is exclusive to the WEF. Like, you know, we've talked about, it's, you have to imagine where the WEF fits in sort of in this uh, hierarchy.
1: Yeah. So I think Ian Davis's diagram is very, very helpful in that regard. A lot of the WEF seems to be directed toward marketing and policy setting. And there's not that many hard edges or really things you can hold them accountable for they're not they're not that overtly connected to real sovereign powers and real real lovers of power within governments as far as i can tell
0: yeah, uh you know, like like I've sort of uh talked about already, you know, they're building sort of these global networks, I guess, um where, you know, you do have some big power players linking up with each other and the WEF is facilitating that and not, not necessarily directing the power there, right? Um but um, one of the things I talked about in that in that article uh, that I, I wrote last year that I, I was referencing earlier is how it's about ending online anonymity and financial anonymity. So the first one is about uh, basically what was proposed under the Obama administration as a driver's license for the internet, basically internet access being tied to a government-issued ID. So basically, so the government can surveil everything you're doing online uh, with the you know. Um, excuse of this is the only way to stop cyber attacks is essentially what the narrative is there. But the same thing too, with financial anonymity framing, this is necessary to end ransomware cyber attacks. We have to be able to track, um, and, and follow, um, everything you are spending and doing with your money. Uh, and of course, one of the, uh, best ways to do that for these people is, you know, a, a centralized uh, digital currency or a central bank digital currency, I would suppose. And it's interesting um, that in sort of this this WEF organization there, which is, a, I remembered it now, the WEF Partnership Against uh, Cybercrime, you have um, A lot of players both in um, that's part of a a broader like the cybersecurity center of the WEF, which has a lot of involvement, both of the U.S. and Russia, which, you know, obviously now with the Ukraine situation, uh, we're seeing these two apparently opposing blocks form, but they seem to agree about this particular policy on the way forward, at least major actors in Russia's government and also Spurbank. Um, and Spurbank, um, as I talked about on my previous podcast with Riley Wagaman, um, not only is it Russia's largest bank, but it's also their probably their uh, most uh, world economic forum connected financial institution. But it's worth pointing out that, you know, Cyber Polygon and all of this stuff had the direct involvement of Russia's government. The keynote was given by the Russian prime minister, and you had the uh, Bank of Russia, their central bank, their deputy governor, uh, talking about how great central banks are for controlling the population at the WEF's cyber polygon exercise last year. Um, so I can read a, a quote from that later. So if, if you're okay with uh, uh, talking about uh, some of this digital currency stuff uh, now, uh, John, uh, maybe we can get into some of the the CBDC uh stuff going on because it it is sort of related to um, a lot of what we're talking about or have been talking about today and also um specifically in, in the context of it being sort of part of this end game that we both were talking about earlier you know the idea of a central bank digital currency seems to be very um uh important to that for the the powers that be and it seems like there have been some developments um on both sides uh, of the uh, of you know the people uh, backing the various blocks that have formed in this this um, you know the ukraine russia conflict uh, seem to be uh, basically uh, in agreement with uh, you know this particular agenda for at least for domestic use um having a central bank digital currency with which to you know sort of financially <laughs> control um you know their domestic populations
1: yeah so the, so to me the the big questions with, with central bank digital currencies. And, and I I know we talked about a little bit of this last time are number one, uh, what, what is backing the central bank digital currency? Um, because remember everybody agrees from Carson's on down to Carson's being the general manager of the BIS and J Powell and everybody else agrees. Central bank digital currencies are going to be the third liability on a central bank balance sheet. The first two being cash, um, which is physical, and reserves, which are electronic. So central bank digital currency would be the third liability. The first two liabilities, cash and reserves, they're, they're th- th- those are liabilities. And the corresponding asset tends to be a bond, um, an IOU from a government, say the US, to whoever holds the bond. Um, Just IOU, you know, a billion dollars plus interest, but it's a, it's a bond from a country or if it's a mortgage backed security, it's, you know, 5,000 mortgages. Um, But the point is it's, it's a, it's a mass bond. It's not atomized down on the individual level. And the question, first question with central bank digital currencies is, are you going to, if I have a thousand dollars of CBDC, what is backing? That currency is it a is it a part of a mass bond, like an IOU of the US, or is it me? Am I the backing? Um, and that that's a big question because if it's indiv- if it's been atomized and it's down to the individual um level, then you are on a very slippery slope to just an outright slavery system where you just they control mm-hmm. everything you do. You know, you're such a, you're just an asset you're literally an asset on the fed's balance sheet. You know, and your personal autonomy is out the window and then you're going to see all these people making bets on your success or failure, you're taking out insurance policies on you. It's, you know, it's an ugly dystopian scene. So that's that's a very critical question you want to ask. The second big question with CBDC is who is the issuer? And that boils down to who's sovereign. So let's start with CBDC out of the fed. The fed would issue the Federal Reserve in the U.S. would issue the central bank digital currency. They've said as much. Um, although there, I've seen proposals, including one you've to me recently, that says, well, maybe the Treasury should issue it. I'll put that on the back burner for, for now. If the Fed is issuing the CBDC, who owns the Federal Reserve? Well, the issuer of the Federal Reserve, you just go to the Federal Reserve balance sheet, you go to the H.4.1 report, it comes out every week, and you look at the balance sheet, You'll see that there's 12 issuing entities when it comes to liabilities and assets on the Fed's balance sheet. And the 12 individual entities are the Regional District Federal Reserve Bank. So Bank of New York, Bank of Boston, Philadelphia, Atlanta on the East Coast, and then Cleveland, Chicago, St. Louis, so on and so forth. There's 12 banks. Those 12 Regional Federal Reserve District banks are privately owned. Which means you're, you're the, the issuer of the currency is private, and really, really, who's the, in, has the sovereign power in the U.S. is it's private corporations, and you can get to that conclusion whether you get to it from who's issuing your money, or with, if you get to it from who is immune from prosecution, the result is the same: it's the people who own the banks. Period. They're immune from prosecution, and they issue money. That's the sovereign power in the U.S. So that's that's a real problem with central bank digital currency, insofar as the U.S. is concerned. When you go to places like China and Russia, to me, you know, I don't I don't know as much about those jurisdictions. That you know, I, I'm just not an expert on China and Russia. I can't tell you who the real sovereign power in Russia is. I mean, I when I see in China, for example. People committing fraud and getting executed, it's just like, well, I guess the people who just got executed weren't sovereign and they were bankers They because they're dead now um, as a result of crimes that by definition work a harm on the public. So there's some question to me as to who the sovereign power in China and Russia are. At the end of the day, I'm not sure that it makes much of a difference. I don't want to be controlled. I, I, I guess if you're a slave, it doesn't matter whether you're controlled by a private corporation or by a government, by, you know, by a sovereign. Yeah. You're
0: still a slave.
1: You're still a Right. Mm -hmm. You're still under control either way. Right. And so, you know, at some point you got to say to yourself, I'm going to stop wasting time or stop uh, not wasting time, but I'm going to stop studying. I'll study it to a certain point. Who's in control of what? And I'm going to, I'm going to turn my attention to what can I do about it? Right good point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, what, what is my role in this and what, what, how can I protect myself regardless of how many angels you can fit on a pinhead?
0: Yeah. Well, you know, the, the argument, there's a lot of debate actually about, um, you know, who's really in control of, of Russia or China, right? We had a um, unlimited hangout co-hosted a, a a panel, or I guess you could call it a debate uh, with Off Guardian, you know, about that exact question. And, you know, um, one of the arguments there is that um, Russia and, and China are in sort of, they say they're in like DEFCON 2 uh, phase. And so a lot of these extreme measures they've taken with like COVID or or other things that are analogous to policies uh, that a lot of us are critical of in, in the West um, are just being done because of that. And another argument was, Um, that Russia and China have sort of like fifth columns uh, and some, and there's this, uh, you know, factional struggle, but I would really urge people, you know, I think every government has factions within it that struggle uh, with each other, but I don't really think any of those factions are 100% white hats or can even really be called the good guys. They're just different interest groups. Um, I think some people tend to, you know, want to look for the quote unquote good guys, um, in any sort of uh, scenario here, it's very easy to be like, these are the good guys and those are the bad guys and have sort of that binary uh, thinking. But I think, you know, frequently, <laughs> more often than not, at least, you know, the um, the reality is usually a lot more uh, nuanced. Um, so in the case of uh, Russia and um, their, um, you know, plans for this, uh, for a CBDC, um, I mentioned earlier um, a quote. From the deputy governor of the Bank of Russia, uh, Alexei Zabatkin, uh, who spoke at the uh, last uh, Cyber Polygon cybersecurity exercise hosted by the World Economic Forum, and uh, co-hosted with them by a subsidiary of Sberbank, Russia's largest bank. Um, so, what he said there is, um, he base, w- but what he basically says is that, um, you know, he says. Uh, well, I'll just quote him <laughs> yeah, better right. to get it straight from his words. Yeah. Uh, so he says this, um, meaning the digital ruble, uh, will permit better traceability of payments and money flow and also explore the possibility of setting conditions on permitted terms of use of a given unit of currency. Um And then he basically said, uh, this is paraphrasing him now that parents could give digital currency to their children with certain restrictions, like blocking them from buying junk food. It's programmable money. Right. Yeah. Uh, Then he goes on to say, uh, that would uh, be a useful functionality for a customer. And of course you can come up with hundreds of other similar use cases, not necessarily for children. That's me adding that. Um, anyway, he says, um, uh, according to uh, him, the digital rubles, quote, last mile access will remain in the hands of the commercial banks, plus possibly other authorized and properly supervised payment service providers. Um, and then he goes on to say uh, the Bank of Russia will maintain the centralized ledger on the Bank of Russia's technological platform. All transactions will be Recorded on this uh, ledger. So, what are your thoughts on uh, that? Does that sound any different than other CBDC systems you've been following? It's,
1: certainly, there's some similarities and some alarming similarities, but it, it, it's not dispositive because of, there's unanswered questions. Number one is who owns the Russian? Who owns Russia's central bank? Is it Russia or is it private entities? You know, I, I, like with the New York Fed. And with the regional Federal Reserve banks in the US, for sure, they are owned by private entities. There's Mm -hmm. the reason I know that is there's a publication by the New York Fed in 1977 called I'll Bet You Thought, written by a guy named David Freeman. You can go read it right there. It's an admission by the New York Fed. Says, yeah, we're owned, you know, those regional federal reserves are owned by private entities. It's Mm -hmm. not part, it's not part of the government. It's public private. It's not no, 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 no. It's not public private. It's private. Period. Full stop.
0: No, I mean the whole system. I guess the whole central banking no, system. That, no, no, not no, not even that.
1: Not not in the U.S. It's not. That, that that's a that's another, um, that's another sales point that people try to, it's the Fed. It's the Fed apologists. Okay, Fed apologists try to tell you, oh well, there's a board of governors, and the board of governors is part of the government, and they, the you know, FOMC is a mix of the board of governors and the regional. It's like yeah, cut the shit. Okay. The issue who issues the money in the US? It's the 12 regional federal reserve bank mm-hmm. and they're privately owned. How much money does the was the board of governors issue? It doesn't issue a penny. The right. treasury issues more in pennies than the board of governors issues. Okay? So just get rid of the board forget the board of governors. It's the it's the regional federal reserves. They issue the money and they're privately owned. They say so. They tell you that. So the question in Russia is who owns the Russian central bank? You know, and I don't and I don't know the answer to that. The second question is, is it really the same, is do are, 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 does it, are they going to eliminate cash? Because cash obviously gets around the problem, the anonymity problem. But I guess the answer to that in the U.S., they keep saying they're going to eliminate cash. And I look at the Fed balance sheet, it's like, well, there's $2.3 trillion of cash out there. It looks to be far from eliminated. So I don't know. You know?
0: Well, I think I think the threat is it could be eliminated at some time, and if it were, the possibility of that is enough to oppose its uh, launch. I guess um, it, I, I say this because on March seventeenth, uh, you know, in, in in Russia anyway, the the Duma, their state legislature, uh, proposed yep. replacing the fiat ruble with a digital ruble.
1: That's disturbing. Yeah, that's not. That's not good. Yeah,
0: so they frame this as countering sanctions, but of course the digital ruble project has been in the work since twenty seventeen. So it's not like a new thing that was just dreamt up to counter uh, relatively recent Western sanctions. To me, it looks like they're sort of using the sanctions as an excuse to sort of uh, legalize and and bring into existence this particular. A uh, system that's that's you know been in the works for a long time, um, and if, I, I believe also that Spurbank, which is has launched its Spurcoin and is very much involved with uh, the WeF. Uh, yeah, they had they they were given a license last month by Russia also to issue digital currency and launch their own. Uh, coin as a, as a means of uh, circumventing Western sanctions. But I believe that Spurbank is now mostly owned by the Russian central bank, but I, I may have to double check that, but it's definitely uh, has a major, the a majority of its ownership is related to the Russian government. I'm pretty sure that's the entity that owns it, but I'll, you know, have to double check um, to be a hundred percent on that. But anyway, it, if the Duma does go about and move to replace the fiat ruble with the digital ruble as has now been proposed, um, you know, I guess that sort of makes, you know, Russia pegging the ruble to the gold a little, uh, you know, that sort of puts that in a different light because, you know, it's a, okay. So it's a, it's a stable coin then it's not really the same as, you know, the gold standard, but that a lot of, uh you know, some people in, in alternative media sort of idealize. Um, I don't know. Uh, your thoughts. You have to remember
1: that Russia and China and the US and really everywhere in the world has a two-tier monetary system, meaning that you there's two issuers of, of money in the system. There's the commercial bank layer, which is our layer. And they they they've been issuing digital digital money for a long time. You know, in the US, it's Bank of America, JP Morgan Chase, Citigroup, Wells Fargo, and all the rest issuing, you know, they create digital money all the time, every day. Every time they issue a loan, they're creating money. The counterpart to that is Spurbank and Russia and other commercial banks in Russia, regardless of who they own, they're issuing debt-based money. That's just how the monetary system works around the world. It's a two-tiered system. Um, and the second, the first tier, the top tier, is the tier that's closer to the sovereign government, and that's the tier that's issuing cash and that's issuing reserves. Okay, so when you talk about the digital ruble, you know, I tell you, there already is a digital ruble. There's been a digital ruber for a long time. I don't really know what it means when Spurbank is coming out with a different digital... What what are you talking about? They already issued digital money. I know that because that's how the two-tiered monetary system works right now. So I'm not really tracking what's going on. But again, it comes back to something you you mentioned, which is who owns Spurbank? Who's the real owner of Spurbank? That's at the commercial bank level. In the US, the commercial banks are all privately owned
0: Mm -hmm.
1: right that that may or may not be true in russia and china i don't know but the ultimate question it always comes down to who is the real sovereign power in russia and in china is it private banks like it is in the u.s there's no question about that in the u.s that's documented the private banks are running everything you can't prosecute them and they issue money ball game i don't know that that's the case in russia or in china and when you look at the Ukraine and the, the battle going on there, um, you know it looks to me like well, you know nobody questioning whether you know Putin's a guy in Russia, Lavrov, and really any number of public officials in Russia. These, these are not people who, who who bluff a lot. You know they say stuff and they tend to mean it. It's, it's been what I've observed. So I have a hard time seeing you know people in Russia. In this battle with the Ukraine, really, which is a battle against the U.S., let's face it. It's a proxy
0: conflict, yeah.
1: It's a proxy war. It's a proxy war. And the U.S. does not want to have its military get waxed out in public because then the dollar is in real trouble. So it's a proxy war. And they're happy to do that because it's like, well, who cares? It's Ukraine. It's not U.S. bodies. We don't have to answer. U.S. population doesn't care. We're just a bunch of Europeans. A bunch of Ukrainian gets killed, so what? I mean, I hate to be cynical, but that's how those people think. But I have a hard time seeing, to me, that battle in Ukraine, it's for all the marbles, M- meaning the U.S. is wants to control everything. It wants to be the hegemon. It wants to be the one that boss around other countries. And it's screaming bloody murder when people don't go along. And so, you know, it chips all in for Russia because they said, you know, No one is really denying that there are biolabs on the border of Ukraine and Russia. No one's really denying the fact that, you know, Ukraine was well on its way to getting nuclear weapons in that country. No one is really denying the fact that Ukraine's got some severe Nazi problem in that country Mm -hmm. and was laying waste to places like Luhansk and Donetsk. Nobody nobody really denying those things. Those are all very real concerns to Russia. I, I, I find those, you know, that's that's a real battle, um, and and that's that's what Russia was concerned about. They don't want nuclear superiority, they don't want nuclear first strike capability being inside Ukraine, and that's where things were headed. So to, to me, this is an existential battle for Russia. On the one hand, took, that, I don't have any doubt about that in my mind. I, I don't mm-hmm. think this is some fake conflict, you know, or some imaginary pissing contest. It's a real it's a real war going on. Um, from Russia's point of view, okay,
0: yeah. Uh, yeah. To to bring up Ian Davis again, he uh, has made the argument. Um, uh, he actually makes it. Well, I think it was published before the Ukraine conflict really exploded. Um, but it's basically his argument is that you know the Russia China block. And the U.S. bloc are sort of fighting over, you know, the unipolar model, which I guess is the U.S. hegemony, and the multipolar model, which is what Russia and China are supporting. But ultimately, the operating system, as he calls it, uh, that uh, of the world, the world order, I guess, that both of those blocks uh, separately wish to. Uh, you know, foist upon the world. Ultimately, you know, it, it's technocracy at the end of the day, of which, you know, central bank digital currencies is, is a key uh, part of that, or the idea of programmable money controlled, you know, by a centralized entity, which, you know, in most cases is going to be the, uh, mostly all cases, I would assume anyway, um, is going to be the central bank. And that basically what you're seeing is you're, you're seeing a fight over who gets what seat at the table, but it's still the same table.
1: I think in loose terms, that's correct. Because remember, I said, regardless of where you are in the world, you have a debt-based monetary system, meaning meaning this, it's not really, you know, it's a two-tiered system where private banks are issuing your money at the retail level, and it creates a debt problem. Um, and that's that's true in China. That's, that's true in Russia. It's banks issuing the money at one level, and really, whether it's this... It, it's the central bank in all these countries too, whether the central bank is privately owned or publicly owned, is the central bank at the top tier too. So he's right. It's it's a battle between unipolar on the one hand and a unipolar model that's dying, by the way, because the currency is dying for the reasons that I set forth, that you're, you're borrowing to make the interest payment now. The, the US is at the end of the debt-based monetary system. It's, it's ball game, it's over, because the US is advanced. We've gotten rid of our manufacturing. We've sold that off. You know, we don't really have productive capacity anymore. What we've got left is a casino. It's, it's, yeah. No, it's a casino. It's no, casino.
0: I, I agree. It's just a—it's a really succinct way of framing it. It's—it's it's, it's yeah. You don't have any industry.
1: job. <laughs> you got—you got rid of your industry. Now you're a casino, and you—you you have two. Your exports are fraud and war. You know, good luck. And now you're borrowing money to make interest payment to your population. You're in real trouble. So this is like what's going on in Ukraine. It's a last gasp for the U.S which is not even engaged in battle. It has to do this by sanctions and whatnot for various reasons. But it, it, that's, that's to try to preserve the unipolar model. This is it, because the debt is going to take off. I mean, you have public officials saying the debt is going to kill you, basically. And so this mm-hmm. is, it. you get world control, you solve your problem, okay? But in the multipolar model, it's not going to do the U.S. any good because if your currency is done, you're done. U.S., I mean, you the Russia and China... They have a debt-based monetary system too, but they're way earlier in the, knee, uh, in the knee of that exponential curve. Like if you look at debt to GDP, that's a one convenient yardstick of how much debt you have. In the US, it's sitting at 135% and it's trending north fast. If you look at debt to GDP in Russia, it's something like 20%. You know, Russia and China, they still have manufacturing. You know, they still have productive capacity in those countries for the time being. Eventually, they'll lose it too because the debt-based monetary system is a cancer that ultimately ends up eating everything and turning you into casino. So you know what you have is a situation now where it's like the debt based the debt-based monetary system, it's it's like the scorpion of the scorpion and the frog fable and now the scorpion is on frog number one with the red, white and blue frog <clears throat> and it's bitten a frog. it's gonna sink to the bottom. So what's the scorpion going to do? it's gonna jump over to you know the, the hammer and sickle frog. And ride it for a while, or the Chinese frog is going to ride that for a while. It's going to, it, it's, its but it's going to bite those frogs too. But it's some, those those systems, Russia and China, are much more viable in the debt-based monetary concept uh, construct because they don't have that much debt thus far. They, they eventually they will, and I, that's kind of see. That, that's my read, or kind of how I see agreement with with what Ian's saying that it's it's unipolar on the one hand versus multipolar on the other. But either way, you're going to end up with a debt-based monetary system.
0: Well, the, the way that there was a joint statement issued by the Russian and Chinese governments at the beginning of February, and basically the way they lay out their multipolar vision is to basically, you know, have the UN have a greater uh, role, essentially. And, and, you know, as we've seen, it's not exactly like the UN puts... The global public's sentiments at the heart of its decision making; it essentially functions like a public-private partnership, and they tend uh, to overly value, at least now, uh, the uh, the opinions and, and will of the uh, private sector and you know some very powerful billionaires. Uh, in what Kofi Annan, when he was Director General of the UN, called a uh, I think he called it a silent revolution or quiet revolution, something like that, at the late in the late nineties. Um, you know, that that shift there away from, you know, the way most people think about the UN, which is like, oh, here's all these, um you know, uh, governments uh, that are just, you know, it's just the public sector, a meeting of the different public sector representatives of the world coming together to make global decisions. It's not it doesn't really work like that in practice um, anymore. And there's a lot in that joint statement that I really find very disconcerting, uh, including, you know, support for some of the uh Crazy stuff going on behind the guise of the the Green New Deal and the the Green Agenda, which is you know there's a reason the UN put Mark Carney in charge of that. Oh, um, you know, put a central banker in charge of that shift. I mean, it's basically a a scam. A lot of the the stuff that they're pushing for uh, there. Um, you know, that I've I've written about uh, before, like, you know, in, in this like natural asset corporation stuff and the financialization of nature, they have put the UN is, is intimately involved in a lot of that stuff. Um, and that was, you know, known before Russia and China came out and say, yeah, well, let's have the UN basically do everything. But with the idea that, you know, it, basically the BRICS countries, uh, you know, would replace... The unipolar model of the U.S. uh, uh, hegemon, Uh, but BRICS is you know a handful of countries instead of one. But I don't really see it in practice as being uh, necessarily that different (laughs) for what's going on. I certainly don't see it as being a utopia, um, as as some have sort of sought to uh, paint it. Um, So I definitely think people should uh, be taking it with a with a grain of salt.
1: So the question to me with CBDCs. Uh, That you could pose both to the US and to Russia and China, be interesting to get honest answers. Would be this if you have a CBD system throughout the globe and everybody is, uh, each country is issuing its third liability on the balance sheet, CBDCs, you know, and you're trading cross border, uh, uh, basically your, your countries, that system you can sort of analogize to the system you have with commercial banks. Like when I said, you're, you've you issued, your bank issues $100 and my bank issues $200 and they trade, you know, at the end of the day, you have to settle between those two banks, right? They have to have some means of settling because I'm holding $200 of your IOUs and you're only holding $100 of my IOUs, you know, I owe you hundred bucks, right? Or no, you owe me hundred bucks because I'm holding more of your IOUs and that banks have to settle with reserves. When you go to the CBDC system, and now countries are issuing potentially liabilities to each other, you have to have a settlement system there too. So the question is, how are you going to settle uh, payments in different currencies at the global level? And, and, and so one answer would be, well, maybe you know maybe the IMF issues a reserve currency that's a settlement currency. They wouldn't call a reserve currency that's too politically uh, hot. So, they would call something like a, well, we need to try to sell it as innocuous. We just need a currency to settle transactions between cross borders. And the question is who is issuing that settlement currency? Mm-hmm. Because, because the issuer of the settlement currency within the US system is the Federal Reserve. It issues reserves. And the Federal Reserve has the power uh, and the capacity to bankrupt any of the commercial banks under it, okay? Because it, it, it can freely issue as many liabilities as it wants, but the commercial banks can't because the people who bank at the commercial banks could turn around and ask for cash and bye-bye the bank goes if it can't meet the demand for cash from the customer. Okay, So the, the Federal Reserve is top dog in the U.S. system because it is the issuer of the settlement currency and because it can issue as much settlement currency as it wants with total impunity ever since we went off the gold standard in 1971. When you go to the global level and you have a settlement currency issuer, who is, the, who is the entity issuing that currency? And the question is, would China, would you or you, Russia, would you agree to let the IMF issue the settlement currency? And the answer is almost certainly no, uh, they wouldn't because, you know, they're just not going to commit suicide like that. But it all comes down to who is going to issue the ultimate currency in that system. And it sounds like what China and Russia are proposing is it does it it, it can't be it can't be the U.S. number one, and it can't be as it's got to be a, a combination of people or a combination of nations so that interests are all represented. Do you follow me? Mm-hmm. I don't know the answer to that question, and it, I, and I'm not sure ultimately it matters, but that that would be one question I would want to have answered. And I think that would that would highlight some differences that that may or may not exist with respect to CBDCs on the sovereign level.
0: Okay. Well, you know, well, there's still plenty of time for this to play out, so we'll see uh, what happens. There's a um, lot of
1: time for it to play out. The U.S. is headed into real problems with inflation, and it, and I, if you look at the money figures right now, they're not looking good. We're looking like we were in the summer of 2008.
0: Hmm. Well, is there sort of like a, a, a time frame that you can sort of put on uh, on this then when, when things are going to get really, really dire for the dollar?
1: Well, classically, you know, the the bad, bad time in the U.S. is in the fall. So,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I, you know, I'd, I'd be real careful, you know, come September. You've got to be careful all the time. But you have rising interest rates now. You have oil price that's been north of you know, $100 for now. You've got inflation the PPI super producer price index came out yesterday it's hot the CPI I mean, inflation is hot but the but the thing that opens my eyes the most is whenever you see the retail money supply start to tick down retail money supply meaning
0: you know mm-hmm.
1: bank deposits basically those bank deposits are now headed south and whenever that happens it's a it's a, almost automatically trouble in the US um, and here, where you're sitting in April, the money supply is ticking down. Uh, boy, I don't know. It, 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 there's there are too many there are too many balls in the air right now with Ukraine. It, there's 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 global conflicts all over the place. It's not just Ukraine, you know. Now you've got Finland looking to be a hot spot. It, it, there's there's trouble everywhere. Um, so there's a lot of unpredictability right now. Not to mention the fact that you know, don't forget. These these vacs, these vaccination nuts these injection nuts they're not done okay they're not dropping that
0: anytime
1: yeah. again. The, the the notion that the lock that we're through the lockdowns I wouldn't be so sure about that either
0: yeah they've pretty much signaled it it will come back at some point and it's very possible it could happen right when a, a dire economic crisis dawns how convenient to have people you know we have to lock you up for your health. When normally you'd be protesting in the in the streets because your money's disappeared or something like that, that is- or the other possibility in the U.S. is that they finally in earnest launch the war on domestic terror, which the infrastructure of which uh, was set out by by Biden last year, and includes people who uh, you can be a terrorist if you don't ag- if you think uh, the government has engaged in unconstitutional overreach, for example, or if you oppose corporate <laughs> globalization or capitalism. Uh, and, you know, it's a very broad definition of domestic terrorist uh, that they're working with. And yeah, a total nose of
1: wax, total nose of wax, completely unconstitutional. It's, it's it, To me, it's right. more on its face. But this is ultimately the problem with letting, you know, when you when you lose the rule of law like the U.S. had by not prosecuting banks, by not even investigating banks, this is what you get. You get criminals running your system. You know, of course it's unpredictable. You don't know what's going They're going to
0: criminalize dissent against them, is, is where this is essentially going. And go. you know, what happened after 2008 with Occupy Wall Street, when they let, you know, let the cat out of the bag that the biggest swindle ever has taken place. That's when a lot of the stuff that we talk about as it relates to domestic terror and these these efforts to really put in the digital control grid and all of that stuff are really going to go live, I think, in the US in a big way, because they they don't want to be held accountable. That's the whole point, right? So. Yeah,
1: that's a great point about Occupy Wall Street, but that was the first time that I remember banks sitting down in the same room with police agencies. Like, are you kidding me?
0: Yeah, I think we're going to see a lot more of that uh, public-private cooperation uh, in, as as this uh, economic situation, uh, specifically in the U.S. as it relates to the dollar, starts to uh, unfold. Um, but do you, uh, I guess uh, then... Um, do you see sort of this uh, de-dollarization that's happening and how that's going to impact U.S. Uh, standards of living, do you see that as becoming sort of like a selling point to an unwitting public for a U.S. CBDC for a digital dollar?
1: That's an interesting notion. It's hard to predict you know, criminal behavior, but for sure I could see them marketing that because you know, inflation is going to tear people apart. A recession would push a lot of people over the edge. And then UBI and CBDC, universal basic income, would be dangled out as a as a branch to safety, as a platform to safety. So, yeah, I could see any number of things playing out like that. By the way, one interesting thing about CBDC in the U.S. is um, there's a lot of slow walking going on in the U.S. on CBDC. You know, Biden administration came out and said, you know, we're looking at CBDC and we're, we're thinking about putting together a steering committee to write a white paper on whether we should pursue. I mean, it's just like. You mean
0: the executive order? That yeah. Came out, about yeah, that, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. What, a, what a joke! Are you kidding me? Yeah, you know, it's almost like the, the foot dragging on CBDC is deliberate,
0: maybe so. But, um, I, I sent this uh link to you earlier before we started. But after that executive order was launched, uh, the private sector or uh, private financial sector launched something called Project Lithium, as it was just related to the Digital Dollar Project, which uh, is a nonprofit that was formed to advocate for a US CBDC. Um, and there, this project, Lithium, uh, the digital dollar project, is is co-managing, uh, is is being done in tandem with a uh, clearing and settlement firm that's a private, I believe, called the Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. So basically, you have uh, on this digital dollar project, you have the former U.S. Commodity Futures Trading Commission chairman. Uh, you have um, some other interesting characters like. Um, uh, Accenture, which is part of ID2020, and uh, they're part of the WAF and very much involved in sort of this fourth industrial revolution digital ID, uh, digital currency stuff. Um, and then what's interesting, it, it looks like the, the, that particular uh, former um, CFTC chairman is a guy whose last name is, it's J. Christopher Giancarlo, and one of the other people involved in the project is an investor named Charles Giancarlo? I'm not sure if they're related, but I suspect that they may be. But what's <laughs> interesting about this investor, private investor, they don't really list what he in, in media reports, what he's an investor in, but it's interesting to note that he's a former top executive at Cisco, uh, which is one of the big tech companies uh, very much involved in some of the WEF cybersecurity initiatives I talked about earlier in the podcast um, and one of the main drivers of the Internet of Things and all of this stuff. right? But he was also a t- he's also a top guy at a Silver Lake Partners, oh, well, I don't. I'm not sure if he's still there, but he. Oh, no, he was there for a long time. But Silver Lake is interesting because I don't know if people remember the Solar Winds hack. Uh, but Silver Lake had a uh, apparently had foreknowledge of the Solar Winds hack before it happened because they were one of two private equity firms that accounted for 75 percent of uh, Solar Winds, I guess, ownership, and uh, they uh, reduced their exposure significantly. Uh, and sold a, a, a considerable stake in the business right before the hack happened. Uh, so you can ask yourself why that, <laughs> why that may have happened. Uh, and for people that don't uh, remember the SolarWinds hack, I wrote about it um, uh, not that long after it happened and the ties of that hack happening, uh, it seems to have been related with uh, the hack itself to the acquisition of an Israeli intelligence connected tech firm that has ties to the Maxwell family. Yes, that Maxwell family, um, as opposed to the official narrative. Uh, but it sort of ties into some of the the other uh, reporting that I referenced earlier about, you know, how a cyber attack is going to, you know, uh, at least as the WEF and some of these Uh, alliances within the WEF have sort of planned out how that will lead to the end of online and financial anonymity. It's interesting to see those players popping up uh, to an extent around the, the, the digital dollar project as it's called. But basically what this is about, um, that this partnership I'm, I'm talking about here, project lithium, the CBDC pilot is, I, they say it's intended to explore the potential benefits of a CBDC, uh, by, uh, Spelling out the value it could bring to the financial services industry, so I sort of see it as them sort of making a sales pitch, uh, you know, a very detailed sales pitch of uh, why you know CBDC will enrich the banks. I don't know what what's your take on on, on all of this.
1: Well, the in so far as Project Lithium is concerned, that article you sent me, let me read you. I mean, the DTCC just to let people know, you know, just like you have to settle. F- monetary transactions between two banks like if I transfer money to you you know that money doesn't really get transferred right the way the way that works is the money in my account gets deleted and it gets recreated by your bank and your account and what really gets transferred is reserves okay so you have to have that, that's that's sort of a, a settlement process the DTCC kind of does the same thing but it does it with securities okay they, they settle securities transaction the appearance of the DTCC privately held, Depository Trust uh, Clearing Corporation, in connection with CBDCs, is horrifying for the reason that I mentioned earlier. And that is that it's sort of, you could have a situation with CBDCs where the individual backs their own CBDC. So I would be the asset backing the $1,000 in my account, right? That's a securities transaction at that point, since you're, you're, you're an asset. And the fact,
0: humanity, yeah,
1: Puritizing humanity. The the, the the, seeing the DTCC show up in this system in that article is like seeing you know a guy with a face mask and a and a and a leather a shirt and a chainsaw come into a room. Like, that's not a that you're coming to a horror film, that's not a good scene, you don't want to see that.
0: All right. Well, that's a very useful analogy for people to associate (laughs) Project Lithium with. So uh, for for people who are hearing of this for the first time, and I only really recently heard of it um, uh, myself, um, you know, that seems uh, a chainsaw man in the room is definitely something to watch. So keep an eye out for
1: hockey, hockey mask, chainsaw man just showed up at your camp at your campfire. (laughs) Um, But he's just here because he is all about inclusivity. Okay. so, Yeah. So
0: well, you don't about yeah. that thing. <laughs> well, yeah, that's been one of the selling points of, of the digital dollar so far. At least you know the the, the way they're sell, selling a CBDC in Russia, right? Is oh, this is how we're going to circumvent sanctions. But at the in the U.S., you know, this is going on at the same time, and they're saying, well, a digital dollar will help the poor. It's more financially inclusive than cash. I don't know. It, yeah. it just seems kind of um, like a silly argument to me. <laughs> um, it is.
1: Chainsaw yeah. man, to quote, the article is here to speed up payments globally and give consumers <laughs> greater access to the financial system. Oh, goody. <laughs>
0: you
1: feel, don't you feel better?
0: Yeah, totally. Oh, man, <laughs> I, I think this is the way all these sort of discussions should be framed in like horror movie analogies. That way people will understand um, a little more of what we're dealing with. And I think that's... Uh, would actually to be honest probably help a lot because you know financial stuff can sometimes be really dry for people and people's eyes glaze over like oh all these terms ma but if you're like chainsaw in a room coming at yeah. you you know i you know then people sort of pay attention so i don't get, know get,
1: get in line chainsaw man's got some coupons for you
0: <laughs> all right uh well uh we've been going for a while so uh, i guess we should probably <laughs> probably leave it on that um. On, on that note, uh, no, cheerful uh, so, note, very good. Yeah, right. So, um, John, would you mind letting people know where they can uh, find uh your work and how they can support you?
1: I'm on. I'm on. My channel is called Best Evidence, and it is on YouTube. It is on BitShoot. It is on Odyssey. Um, and I, I don't. I have not yet. even though I've been doing it for since 2014 or 15. I, I have not yet monetized my videos. So eventually, I'll get around to that.
0: Well, maybe not do it on YouTube because they're really good at demonetizing people that's, that that's they the don't thing. like.
1: I'm not giving I'm not I never I was like I'm not giving YouTube a chance to screw me. So I'm not monetizing yeah. anything.
0: I never even made a YouTube channel, uh, for that very reason. No. <laughs> uh so you know, I definitely um, uh, you know, I actually just wrote a, a report that's going to come out in in the next print edition of, of Bitcoin magazine just about how insane all this censorship is and how really it's this uh, fusion of the national security state with, with companies like Google um, that are driving the censorship agenda. And there's a lot of really sinister stuff. Uh, behind the scenes there, and it's really already being uh, waged, the war's already being waged uh, by AI, uh, and the, the developers of that AI uh, used, used to develop uh, software to track insurgents in Iraq and places like that, and they basically want to have intelligence agencies uh, decide what is true, and then have big tech uh, enforce that with no room for appeal. That's the um the policy being pushed uh pushed out right now
1: <laughs> uh um, which is
0: really wild yeah. um but nope. I guess some of us saw this coming
1: nothing could go wrong there
0: nope nope And uh, just let the c i a that's never never lied before <laughs> tell you what's real and what's not that'll that'll oh work God, uh, terrible. it's it's nuts uh anyway so thank thank you john so much for uh taking the time to explain to me and uh to my audience a lot of uh this crazy really crazy historic financial stuff going on right now and uh what it means uh for those uh, i would really encourage people to uh, share john's uh, work around because it's really some of the best there is about explaining uh very complicated financial stuff in a way that's very easy to understand and i know that um I got a lot of positive feedback uh, the first time you were on from people who were really uh, thrilled to have uh, come across your uh, analysis. So uh, definitely uh, keep it up (laughs) Um, because a lot of people definitely appreciate you and appreciate your work. And I am one of them. So for those of you listening, please uh, consider supporting uh, not just John's work, but also uh, this podcast and sharing this podcast uh, around as widely as you can when it's publicly available. As everyone should pretty much know by now, the first couple days I have it a uh, paywall um, on Rockfin and uh, for unlimited Hangout subscribers, but after that it's publicly available pretty much everywhere. And there's a lot of important information uh, covered in here, so I would really encourage you to try and help disseminate that uh, to the best of your ability because of the extreme censorship climate. Uh, that will only continue to worsen with time. Uh, With that being said, thanks uh, so much everyone for, for listening to this podcast and catch you all on the next episode.